0: I remember the first time I saw a therapist. I wasn't happy about it. I was around nine years old and my parents were getting divorced. Therapy was supposed to help all of us through the process, but I felt like I was being punished. When I think about it today, I can still picture the waiting room of this therapist's office. There was a poster of these cartoon faces all displaying different emotions, and it really creeped me out for some reason. I would try to sit in the chair farthest from it or one out of its eyeline so I wouldn't have to look at it. I would also bring books with me so that I could dive into the stories and pretend I was at Hogwarts or in Narnia, anywhere except this waiting room. Now, to be fair, the therapist was a great guy, and my experience wasn't actually bad. It it was great and helpful. The circumstances just sort of cast this gloomy mood all around it. It wasn't until I was a little bit older that I realized that therapy wasn't a punishment at all and that I was lucky to be able to get mental health care because a lot of people don't. Even if they get past the stigma around asking for help, millions of Americans don't have access to the mental health resources that they need. I'm Lauren Berry and this is It's Generational. Four fantastic guests from different generations join me for our latest season to explore mental health and more. They include baby boomer journalist Dorothy Tucker, president of the National Association of Black Journalists, Gen X journalist Hugo Balta, the former president of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, millennial comedian and writer Aparna Nancherla, author of the upcoming book Unreliable Narrator: Me Myself and Imposter Syndrome. And Kim Syra, a Gen Z content creator focused on inner healing and community care. We'll start out with our chat about mental health, including how it is shaped by culture, how it can be difficult to access, and how attitudes about it are shifting. Is there one specific practice that you do in your life that you think is the most important thing for your own personal mental health? And
1: what is it? I read affirmations every day. From a book called "Calling Jesus," that has probably helped me gain more patience, be more tolerant. You know, I mean, I I grew up in a, a family where church was important, and then as you grow older, and you know, you, you kind of move away from it, and you aren't as steeped in every week, twice a week, like you did when you were a kid, and it becomes once a month, and trying to make sure everybody gets there on time and such, and what I have learned, and this is really recently, uh, is to go back and lean and lean into my faith. And I have found that, that that helps me. And I've always believed in God, always prayed. But the reading the affirmations literally on a daily basis and starting my morning like that, I find, is just kind of a good way to start the day you know you wake up going oh god what do i have to do today and then you read them and there's one little sentence in there that just kind of gives you that strength to say you know that's what i'm going to embrace today and i'm gonna i'm gonna walk out here i was just i was just telling my daughter she is uh, not as god-based as i am but i told her you know i'm I'm not going to get her religious Book of affirmations, but I'm gonna order her something and, and send her something, you know, because I because even whatever any any of the positive affirmations, you know, you read them and and you will say, oh my goodness, that spoke to me today. It must have been written just for me. Clearly, the universe was thinking about me and knew I needed to hear this at that time. Isn't that amazing? You know? <laughs> so that's what I do.
2: Um, I I have dealt pretty regularly with anxiety and depression for like the past few decades. And I think for me, it's like therapy and medication, which are privileged resources I've, I've had access to, like, I think those have made me able to like function more or less. So I feel like those are, you know, maybe not as uh, freely accessible to everyone, but I do feel like for me, they have like made a huge difference in the ability to live my life.
3: I actually do something called somatic activated healing. So somatic activated healing is like a whole modality in itself, but what it is is basically a combination of meditation, affirmations, breath work, and then also ecstatic dance. Um, it was taught by um this my my teacher who is a yogi, his name is Saudi Simone, but Every time I do this method, I'm in tears. I'm like bursting out in tears. And I'm also laughing at the same time as I'm crying. And it feels so cathartic. Um, I was raised really religious, went to Catholic school all my life. I was an altar server. I did co- confirmation the whole ten year, nine, ten yards. Um, and I feel like this somatic modality for me has actually made me more connected to God. Um, because i it's it's just been it's just been so fruitful for me. But, um, yeah, that's what I do,
4: so this is a real tough question. And you know, every other question, I'm jumping in, right? Like I got something to say. Just even thinking about the question, two things come to mind. The first thing is accepting that I'm not well, just admitting I'm not well, because part of it is culturally, Part of it has to be the family dynamic, uh, which is a whole other story. But I often feel I can't fail. I I can't fail. There's too many people that it's not just me, right? If, If I fail, other people fail, beginning with my family. So I can't admit something's out of place. It's been very difficult to get to a place. Where I can vocalize um, and be comfortable in vocalizing with people who I've just met that I'm not well. So that's that's been a big, big, huge thing for me. But what I do for myself is spend time with myself. I'm a husband. I'm a parent. I'm a teacher. I'm a coworker. I'm a son. Blah 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 blah, blah and I need times to be alone because I have a relationship with myself, and whether it's just walking with patches my dog or just doing something that's just for me it's okay you know it that's good I love being a parent love being a husband loves all those things but I need a couple of hours during the week maybe during the month where it's just me
0: Dr. Milton Fuentes is a proud first-generation college graduate who's now a professor and coordinator of undergraduate advising for the psychology department at Montclair State University in New Jersey. I reached out to Dr. Fuentes to help me understand how mental health professionals are trained. I told him about what Hugo revealed here, and he brought up something really interesting about how we think about being strong or resilient.
5: I wanted to mention this idea of... um of resiliency versus resistance right so there's there's a conversation evolving in this area in the past we we gave a lot of credit to resiliency right this idea that people can cope and manage and uh respond to these these harmful uh, forces and I, and I don't I don't know if, if that's something that we should really be highlighting or celebrating. I don't think we want people to, to adapt to challenging or oppressive situations. I, I really like the idea of um resistance. Uh, some colleagues of mine, uh, uh, French and colleagues wrote a, a great article around that. And one of the things is focusing on people's strengths is important and also helping people think through, you know, what part of this is mine? What part of this is coming from from society and, and is problematic and how can I what steps can I take? And as I broaden that consciousness, my my own personal cultural consciousness around these issues, what steps can I take to challenge or question or resist? Right. And I think that's that's more empowering than celebrating somebody's ability to to be resilient in in challenging situations.
0: Aparna, I I feel that too, about, you know, needing therapy and stuff. And as a millennial, I'm interested because I'm a millennial too. And I feel like things have improved as far as like stigma for getting mental health treatment and stuff. But have you ever felt it challenging to like get the help that you need? Or have you ever felt it difficult to talk to your friends about it?
2: Mm, I think early on, maybe like when I first was diagnosed with depression, I feel like like even in my family like my mom struggles with mental health but then my dad i think comes from a generation and a culture where it's like you suck it up and you you know you push forward and dwelling on things is the reason you're like not able to like do anything or chin up but i think for me i i was so like amazed when i found a label for like what i was feeling and what i was going through that i really kind of it opened stuff up for me and i felt actually the opposite of like, oh, I want to like be able to talk to people about this because it feels like not talking to people is part of the problem with carrying that alone in your brain, like the alienation, I think just compounds it. So I think I've been lucky in that I found, you know, people have been accepting when I have opened up about it. And even my work, I feel like people are always, you know, on board if I like make a joke about a more serious topic.
0: Yeah, I like I agree that things are improving is like I've been struggling with anxiety and I felt like I had to keep it a secret when I was younger. But I definitely feel more open about it now. I know since we're talking about generational stuff, I know different generations, at least from the conversations I see online, have different ideas about mental health. And I think most importantly, different ideas about talking about it. Does anybody have this experience where they kind of like don't understand the way another generation is talking about it or how they're using therapy terms online? Kim, you're nodding.
3: Yeah. I mean, the ways that, I mean, I think it's for me, at least a generational thing combined with the cultural aspect, because my parents did not talk about mental health. If you were if you were anxious, you were not praying enough, or you were not being grateful enough for the roof over your head. But I also feel a lot of anxiety a lot. And so Um, I've I've come to realize that now at the in the age of social media, it's really easy to diagnose how we're doing based on a post or based on a TikTok or like you must have depression if you experience these three things. And I think that's really harmful because um, um, I think it goes down to this court aspect, which is. Why are we not funneling way more money into mental health resources, um, especially is and where we feel like we have to tune into social media because we think that's the most accessible to us. I mean, like therapy is not is it, it's sad that therapy is a privilege that should not be the case. And it's sad that community spaces or spaces where we feel safe to talk to other people about our feelings or tell our bosses that we're not feeling good enough to show up to work for whatever reason, it's just not a welcomed conversation. But I think social media really adds to that. Um, So, yeah, I have a lot of feelings about about the way that we're, we're going about mental health on the Internet versus how I feel like. I feel like at the core of it we sh- money should be funneled into these resources and organizations to begin with.
0: And going along with that too, I don't know if anybody I'm just interested in if, if anyone's had um experience that's good or bad with an in-person therapist versus a telehealth therapist if that changes the dynamic.
2: I mean I mean just to jump in uh, briefly I would say I saw a therapist in person and then during lockdown, it switched to remote. And, but we had already kind of established a pre-existing bond. So I don't know if that's quite the same as like, you know, like an app like BetterHelp or something. But I would say it has been OK to do it remotely
0: um, versus in person.
1: Yeah, I've, I've, done, I've done both, you know, and, and I don't see much of a difference.
0: Earlier in this episode, I said that millions of Americans struggle to get access to mental health care. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, nearly half of the 60 million adults and children living with mental health conditions in the U.S. go without treatment. I know many people in my generation, myself included, who find plenty of reasons why they can't visit a therapist. At the top of the list is the potential time and money it would take to find and pay for a visit. Insurance doesn't necessarily help since it is often confusing to navigate if you have it, And it typically doesn't cover transportation costs. Then, during the COVID-19 pandemic, telehealth services expanded a lot and more people had access to mental health services. But this expansion hasn't been free of bumps. In March, the Federal Trade Commission reported that the popular online therapy site BetterHelp violated its privacy promises by collecting sensitive health data from customers and sharing it with companies such as Snapchat and Facebook. Still, Fuentes stressed that telehealth offers important opportunities to improve mental health care coverage in the future.
5: I think things have changed considerably, and I, and I think they've changed in an, um, in an exciting way, right? So no, nothing nothing is perfect, and there's always going to be challenges. And so if you're going to if you're going to do clinical work in it um, using a different modality, um, you need to be mindful of all sorts of you know all sorts of issues such as does this person have a, a solid connection. Do they have a, a safe space to uh, to have these conversations? Um, do you you know if, if the person no longer has the, the privacy necessary for engaging in a good clinical conversation? You know, have have you designed some sort of code word or some sort of safety word you can you can share so to let to alert the therapist that you know you're you're not able to have this this important and relevant conversation. You know keeping all that in mind, right? there's you're you're doing this work differently. so so you're going to have to think through all these all these nuances and at the same time, there are exciting developments around psychologists being able to work beyond the state that they're licensed in, which is exciting. So that creates more resources for individuals and then just making it easier to have access to services, right? so you're you're now removing the transportation barrier. And that, and that involves time and money, right? So you're, you're you're removing any financial barriers that might exist to getting to the services. You know, the data is is pretty promising that that people are having good work. They're doing good work virtually. Um, and it, it compares similar to to what's happening uh, in the office. And so that's that's exciting. I think that's improving access. Um, for folks which is which is really important. The waiting lists are sadly very long and I think we need to think about creative ways to respond to folks who are on waiting lists. If you're going to put somebody on a waiting list for a couple months, can we provide any resources uh, if the person is struggling with depression and anxiety there's some really great books out there that they can they can start reading and start addressing the challenges right away and there's some good research that has found that bibliotherapy, can be an effective way to address a concern. So I think we you know I think it's an this is an ethical obligation. We can't sit around knowing somebody's suffering and waiting to see us when we know that there are possible resources that we can be using to help alleviate this distress.
1: My concern is that with so many, people with it becoming so much more common today. My concern is about the profession. My concern is about those who are actually on the other side of the chair and whether they are really educated enough, prepared enough, skilled enough to be able to help, or are they just listening and feeding back whatever you want to hear and really not moving the needle. Do your homework. Do your homework. You know, so I feel like, you know, there's a part of me that says, is is somebody out here watching? You know, is the American Mental Health, and I'm making this up, Association, you know, are do people who are in this field have to go back after three years and get retrained again? You After 10 years, you know, if you got your doctorate, does anybody say, okay, now come back in uh, for more training so you can deal with the issues that are going on today with millennials? I don't know. We're more open to it. So I just want to say I want to see some uh, things put in place to make sure that people are really being served as they should be.
2: I think that's a great point, especially because like people who already have trouble seeking help, like if you have an experience with a bad therapist or like someone who prescribes you medication that may not be the right fit, that will like close the door for a lot of people where they're like, why should I try that again? It just made me feel worse. and It already took the time and energy that I barely have enough of anyway. So I think it is so important to have those checks and balances and going off of what Kim was saying, not just like have like therapist influencers on TikTok be like, look at this checklist and figure out if you're borderline or not.
0: My co-producer Mallory Samara also jumped in to ask our panel about diversity in the psychology field. For some context, an analysis last year of American Psychological Association data found that 83% of the psychologist's workforce was white. I think something that adds to that is the fact that I think that there are now so many non-white and people of color who are seeking therapy but might not find therapists or access to therapists who might understand some cultural things that they might be going through. Fuentes has been a psychology professor for 25 years. One of his main goals in preparing future generations of researchers, therapists, and mental health providers is to infuse an understanding of diversity into their work.
5: I think it's so important for training programs to adopt what I call an EDI-centered approach, right? So programs need to think through in what ways are they promoting equity, diversity, and inclusion, and how are they ensuring that those efforts aren't aren't just a moment but a movement and i'm going to just credit my my colleague theopia jackson former president of the the association of black psychologists who who mentioned that in a in a meeting which i really appreciated right edi equity diversity inclusion they're getting a lot of attention right now and so i'm hoping that it moves beyond checking the box and we did it today and we don't have to worry about it again. I really do think that it really becomes a movement and people start to think through, in what ways do EDI inform my mission statement? In what ways do they inform training objectives? Is EDI infused throughout all the courses or am I just relegating it to one course, right? Why do I look at how EDI is related to all the training courses. Are students getting exposed to the appropriate practicum and field placement experiences? Are supervisors being properly trained to support these students in their, in their settings? Um, to address, again, back to EDI, right? Uh, is it coming up? Are we discussing it? Because supervisors are modeling this for students, right? So they need to show students how to have good EDI-centered conversations. And how to respond to missteps. Listen, talking about issues related to EDI are not easy and we're never going to do it perfectly. So if we're trying to do it perfectly, then we're never gonna get started. So I prefer progress over
1: perfection. It'll be I think it'll be interesting um as the years go on, how much
0: more access we have to therapists of color.
1: To Mallory's point though, about wanting somebody, you know, from your culture, I have I too. You know, because when I did go to the company and I said, yes, you know, first I started off, I, I'd like a I'd like a black woman. And they're like, no, nope, then hell okay. how about a black man? Well, OK, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and and I think they existed somewhere, but they just never sent anybody. And I was like, OK, fine, let me just go out and find my own black woman here and then and then come back again to you. and And I just kind of felt like I wanted to say to the company, don't you understand that it is important to me? because I'm going to talk about some things that, quite frankly, a person probably needs to kind of be, you know, have a similar culture of mine. That's not to say. And in the past, in the past, I had had white therapists, but this time I was like, yeah. Has
0: anyone else had experience either good or bad with um, a therapist from their culture or from outside of their culture?
3: I actually have had negative experiences with Filipino therapists which is really sad for me to say and it's it's a terrible thing for me to admit but um I was going to a therapist for about a year and um her approach to things is just the way that she approaches them but along the a lo- along the lines I was going into like my, a lot of my spiritual journey so I was um for example I was like traveling and and receiving indigenous wisdom and, and receiving indigenous um just like indigenous plant medicine, just like things like that, um, that I feel like have really, really helped um, the anxiety that I was feeling for so long. And then I would go and tell my therapist this and she wouldn't take it seriously. And I felt like after that, I felt a lot of fear telling her what I was doing because- I realized that um, she told me this one time, which is, you know, um, if it seems like you're putting yourself in danger, we will call the cop like this is how it would be. The cops will be called and then they would they would come. That's like kind of the protocol. And I thought that was really uh, terrible to have such a punitive way to for therapists to be trained to see mental health. So I ended up quitting therapy Talked therapy specifically because of that reason. And it's taking me a little bit more to, you know, I'm a new therapist now, but it's like it's taking a lot of trust for me to really feel comfortable and open telling a Western therapist my problems. Um, especially when it comes down to deep depression, deep thoughts, because a lot of my fear is, will I get arrested for this? Will the cops come to my house and like take me to a psychiatric facility? And is that really the care that I need? Or is that the care that they've been taught they should give me? Um, And these are, I guess, the conversations that I feel like I'm having um, a lot offline.
5: You know, when it comes to deciding whether to engage in mental health services um, or not, I think there's several factors that that might contribute to um, someone's decision to engage, and certainly there are personal factors, right? Uh, certain messages that folks have internalized from their family, from parents, from uh, their culture, and so um, I think all of these various factors will inform someone's decision. The other factor that may play a role here, as it relates to culture, is acculturation, right? So. Depending on people's attitudes toward mental health treatment in their culture of origin or their you know where they where they originally came from, uh, those attitudes will certainly inform a person's decision. And then if, if they've been here um, for a couple of generations, and depending on what part of the country in the US. you might live in, you know, attitudes toward toward mental health treatment are either positive or negative, right? So um, I think all those factors will inform someone's decision. Also, I think just you know culturally, um, some folks in the Latin Latina or Latinx community have other sources of support. so they may not necessarily turn to traditional mental health treatment, but they may turn to um, a trusted adult. They might turn to a priest or a spiritual leader. Um, they may turn to just other other places where they where they get the the necessary support mental health entities haven't always been supportive or understanding of people's mental health needs. They might either pathologize somebody's values or somebody somebody's behaviors. I mean, the other thing they might do is because of the history of, of oppression in our country, they might not help people take a deeper look at, you know, why they're behaving the way they're behaving or why they're thinking the way they're thinking. And oftentimes, either colonization forces or oppressive forces might be informing the presenting problem so you you know you're I'm, I'm giving you a lot because you're asking a, a complicated question and it's 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 multidimensional and it's nuanced and so it's going to vary from person to person but you know i think that there are certain cultural messages people might receive around engaging in in treatment and they it might be you know you're weak or you're crazy Um, So those, those might be some, some messages that folks might receive. So just some things to keep in mind.
0: Just hearing about Kim's struggle to find a therapist brought me back to my own time sitting in that waiting room 20 years ago and how those memories made me reluctant to go back even as I got older. But Kim said that she's been able to turn her negative therapy experience into a positive.
3: Yeah, I mean it's all good, um, and I think I think it's a learning experience because what I really am interested in is a very uh, magnified view on how we are, how therapists and how Western culture treats mental illness or treats mental disparities, how they've been trained to. A, a, a teacher I really love is Gabor Matei. and he, pay, he pays really close attention and does a lot of research about how practitioners in the West weren't trained to ask people like who have, who are going through actual physical diseases, you know, how is it like getting raised, being with with parents who are divorced? Like these introspective questions about feelings when it comes to their physical ailments, and he he mentions a lot of that that I like to refer to.
1: I think it's important, um, you know, when I when I hear young people like you ladies talk about freely about your mental health challenges, and you know, you're seeking therapists and finding solutions. You know, I wish there was some way to get that message to my generation, you know? I wish there was some way to take away the stigma because I think there are so many men and women of my age, near my age, a little younger than me, who really could benefit from counseling, from therapy. Uh, And because it was something that, you know, we didn't grow up with, we didn't do. And, you know, like your parents who just go, uh, is a stigma and, you, and you, you know, I'm not going to go there and I don't need that. You know, I, I wish I could, there was a campaign that AARP put out a campaign, you know, and said, it's okay. Just like they do with the young people. It's okay to say I'm not okay. That is something that should be for you know, young boomers and uh, in, in boomers my age. It's okay to say I'm not okay. And it's never too late to say I'm not okay. It's never too late, no matter how old you are, to finally unleash the past, you know, to accept that the imperfections in your life and really take a look at why you did what you did, why you didn't do, why you didn't achieve, because you're still here. And if you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, let's try and make it a better day. So, you know, talk to somebody now.
4: And I'll tell you that the, the last part was like a masterclass for me, listening to all of you, um, different perspectives about mental health. I'll tell you as someone who's struggling to get to that point of getting help, I, I've gotten some help, and but but just listening to the different perspectives, it, it's, it's educational and reassuring. A lot of what I'm learning about the importance of mental wellness is coming from my, my kids. My son is seventeen. My daughter's twenty. My students are obviously younger uh, also, and it's educational of how just how important that is, especially for someone who like me, that i I grew up in that household where you just gotta suck it up, get back on the horse. you know what do you mean you you feel depressed. Let me tell you why you shouldn't because of all of you know you know what I'm saying, so. But anyway, that last part, masterclass from me. Thank you very much. I, I've learned a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to It's Generational. I'm so grateful for our panel guests, Dorothy Tucker, Hugo Balta, Aparna Nanshurla, and Kim Syra. I'd also like to thank our expert, Dr. Milton Fuentes of Montclair State University. Our theme music is by Zatra. Check out our other episodes featuring this panel. We'll be discussing community and friendship. This episode was produced by Mallory Samara and me, Lauren Berry. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review. You can listen to It's Generational on the Odyssey
4: app or wherever you find your podcasts.